Hello, and welcome to Beyond Prospecting, the Apper podcast, featuring thought-provoking conversations with prospect development and fundraising experts. We hope you enjoy today's episode. Welcome, everyone, to the first episode of the Ethics podcast series. Uh, This episode is Data Analytics, Ethically Sourced and Prepared for Your Consumption. We have three great panelists with us today. I'd like for them to introduce themselves. Audrey, would you introduce yourself? Sure, I'd love to. I'm Audrey Jeffroy. I am the Senior Director of Data Services at the University of Florida Foundation, and I uh, learned all my analytics by starting out as a researcher and working my way up and building the analytics program here. Awesome. Ashutosh? Hello, everybody. My name is Ashutosh Nandeshwar. I oversee the data efforts, the data science efforts at the University of Southern California, and uh, we recently also released a book called Data Science for Fundraising, uh, co-authored with Roger Devine here at USC. I'm glad to be here on the podcast. Welcome, Ashutosh. Marianne? Hi, I'm Marianne Pelletier. I'm the Managing Director of StopHell Analytics Group. Uh, this is my 30th year in nonprofit work, uh, especially in prospect research and prospecting. Um, and I also have a book out, uh, Building Your Analytics Shop. Welcome, everybody, and thank you all for so much for being here. One of the big questions that we always get uh, for the Ethics Committee is about data skewing, especially in terms of uh, data analytics. Audrey, can you talk about a little bit about data skewing and implicit bias and all that fun stuff? Sure. I'll, I'll give it a stab and and. Ashutosh and Marianne can, you know, throw throw their their two cents in as it comes up. Um, so one of the things that I think it's really important for us to think about is the integrity of our data, and um, it, it's one of the principles of in our ethics statement. And integrity implies that you actually have to make sure that you are um, that you are using the data in a way that um, isn't painting a false picture. So it's important to really look and make sure that you aren't skewing a point of view and that you're really giving, letting people know what's actually in the data and pointing out areas where there are outliers and where there aren't and that you are um, making sure that, that what you're doing is transparent and um, isn't uh, reflecting your own bias. Are there any good rules of thumb as far as what data points to use or data points to avoid? Well, um, you know, I've had discussions about this in the past, and um, there are there are some data points out there that are are nice to have, um, but depending on how you're going to use them uh, and what they might tell you you might want to think twice about using them, uh, particularly if you have um, the kinds of data that can be controversial or confusing or um, sort of reinforce your own implicit biases. For example, um, you might have in your database um, coding about um, you know, race or ethnicity, but that's not always an appropriate thing to use. 
um, particularly if you're trying to make sure that you're not uh, looking for something that's already coded because, uh, I don't know, I, I actually need to, lost my train of thought and need to edit that out. <laughs> um, so, um, so yeah, do you ahead. mean, when you talk about that, do you mean like, um, if I say that, um, I, I know for a fact that if you attend an event, you'll be a donor. And so therefore, I I sort of make sure that more people who attended an event and became a donor go into my study. You know what I mean? Instead of just studying everybody, I sort of take a sample that makes my point rather than taking a sample that actually illustrates what's really happening. Is that the is that where we are? Right. I think that's, yeah, I think that's part of it. I think we're talking about, yeah, so you're talking about endogenous variables, ones that basically tell you what your outcome is, because the only reason they're in your database is because that was the outcome, which is a... a oh, great, yeah, yeah, there's that, yeah. A, yeah, that's, that's yeah. perfect. That's a perfect example. But there's also uh, data in your system that could be potentially controversial, depending on what kind of studies or what kind of analytics you're using. Um, I'm pretty sure that I've had conversations in the past about people who were like, you know, maybe we shouldn't be including um, race as a variable when the only time we ever coded it was for a specific purpose that was kind of sketchy back in, you know, 1959. It, it makes sense mm -hmm. then to make sure that you're not using something that's not, that doesn't have integrity in, in many ways because it's not complete and it's, doesn't tell you anything. So I wonder, can um, Gareth, if we go back to when you asked kind of that follow-up question, um, I think you said, you know, so what are some examples? Um, maybe we can start from there, and then Audrey, if you want, would you, would we want yeah, like Marianne to kind of maybe chime in, yes. and then, um, yeah, and then Audrey, you can kind of follow up from there. Okay, that was perfect. Okay, well, we're gonna do it again. Okay, yeah, just from that. Yeah, Ashley should chime in too. Yeah. What was my follow-up question again? Are there any any rules of thumb, or was that what was that what it was? Right. Any examples of rule of thumb, or what kind of data is allowed, or okay? Okay. Are there any good rules of thumb as far as what data to use or not to use that you would recommend? So there. Well, I mean, I think uh, I don't know if um, anybody else wanted to chime in on this one. To, to give an example of what you mean exactly. So I have to wonder if this is um, um good rule of thumb, like specific data um, would include things like you don't use social security numbers anymore. Um, right, exactly. But I also have to wonder, yeah, I also have to wonder if um, things like if I want to prove that event attendance um, lends uh, to to donors makes uh, help you know is an indicator of people being donors. Then um, I'm going to select only data that proves that point, and uh, instead of taking a random sample, I'm taking a very specific sample. Right, exactly. So you're talking about using endogenous variables, like your what you're at the business question that you're asking. You select the data that already answers that question. <laughs> To put in your model, and that's the only thing in your model. You're not you're not gaining anything from it. Um, that's right. that's a great example. Well, also, but I'm only putting in my model. I'm pretty much telling a false tale because if I say 
out of this random group of 100 people, it's not demonstrated that going to an event makes uh, is an indicator of them being a donor. Um, so I choose a set of 100 people that shows that it does. I think the endogenous thing comes from when I say things like, well, people who are members of our recognition program tend to give at a recognition level. Right, right. Uh, I thought you meant that you only were inviting donors <laughs> to the event. So if, oh, so then that would have... Oh, right. Oh, yeah. Uh, what is that? Post hoc ergo proctor hoc, right? <laughs> exactly. <Yeah. laughs> that's what I thought you meant. Yeah. Yeah, yeah that's yeah, the endogeneity. Yeah, that is a, a good example. Yeah, yeah and of course... So I don't think that... no, go ahead. Oh, sorry. So I don't think that specific data points um, are, um, what is it, right or wrong to use. I agree with you, it's how you use them. So if I say, um, find me people where both members of the household are the same gender um, and use that as analytics, what am I going to do with it? You know, that becomes the question. Right. right. That's, that's a great ethical question. What are you going to do with it? Are you, is there a business need? I actually, I think in some ways that's really kind of where we need to start, even before we get to talking about skewing data or you know what what is the right method. I think we need to start with okay, what is the business question? How are we going to use it when we're going to build the model? Um, is it something that's going to be useful? Is it sustainable? Um, is it something that we can use to improve? What's what's happening in our the mission of our organization, and um, most importantly, is it respectful of the people in your database? Um, I think those are all important considerations before you even like start the project. Is look at the business question and ans ask yourself all those questions. I think on the other side of the analytics question, uh, the ethics question is when we present results that are you know fair and statistically sound and answer the business question and then our audience doesn't like the results um i have sometimes been pushed to move the results a little bit to accommodate the um the needs of my audience and so that's 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 an ethical dilemma for me too right first of all i refused that's actually a different kind of skewing not not the skew as in like hey look this this uh, one person who gave $5 million skews everything up this way, but uh, skewing, like presenting the data in a way that skews the results. So you, you're lying with statistics as that famous quote from Mark Twain is, you know, you know, lies, lies, and statistics. I mean, how you present it also poses a huge question. Do y'all have any good rules of thumb as far as how to handle a client or a fundraiser who or even administrator who really wants to present the data in a slightly different way than what the data is necessarily telling us what advice do you all have for people in that situation my my phd advisor tim menzies always used to say since we're talking about bias and there are various types of bias but tim used to say that bias blinds us and bias lets us see what that means is, yeah, bias is going to narrow our focus on the things that we care about, but also because we may have that bias, whether it's our own bias or bias in the data, we are going to see some different things in, in the data itself. So a good example of what uh, Marianne just mentioned and Gareth, the question that you asked regarding 
any rules of thumbs or how uh, rules of thumb or how you control what the output may be is always around charts, right? It's always about presentation. So you have a meeting, big meeting with big donors, big prospects, and you come up with these 10 different variations of the same chart, which tells a different story every time. So for example, if you just wanted to show your return on your endowment, you can just pick the last 10 years and exclude 2008 from that, and then it may look good. But is that the true story? So as analysts, I think we always have to watch out for what we are producing and advocate for what seems fair, as Marianne said. But at the end, people are going to choose the story that they most care about or they like. I agree. I mean, my job is to inform decision-making. It's not to make the decision. So if someone said to me, can you change this chart because I really need it to look this way for my boss or for the trustees, I always give them a lot of information about the consequence of doing that and have even sometimes said, I, I can't do that because you're asking me to, um, you're asking me to tell a lie, but here's the data underlying it. That, that's the same as what we do here. There have been times where uh, they've, they've asked a question that made me feel uncomfortable, and my, my response was always, okay, um, this, is, this is what it looks like. This is what the data says. And as long as you have this caveat and you're willing to take the consequences of, um, because it's like anything else, there, there are risks in your business to your reputation, to the accuracy of what you do when you make decisions. Well. Um, if you want to make a decision, these are the risks of making that decision. And speaking of risks, moving more a little bit towards compliance issues, uh, data protection is a big uh, hot button issue right now, especially with GDPR going into force in May. That's the general data protection regulation uh, out of the EU and UK. Uh, what are sort of the trends that y'all are seeing in regards to data analytics and complying with data protection laws? Um, so the, I did a little research on this. And the first thing is, is, you know, in Canada and in the UK, privacy is much more important than it is in the United States. And it's interesting to watch the United States head back toward privacy. Um, in, uh, let's see, I'm looking at a study. Um, 110 nonprofits um, showed a breach, a data breach um, between 2005 and 2016. And a 2016 survey showed that 63% of nonprofit organizations had a data breach. So when we get into that, even the IBM, uh, although the thing is, is like what we've done over the last few years is talk about PCI compliance. And that's the it sounds uh, it sounds it sounds you know ultra sophisticated, but really it's uh, some program wanders around on my computer and tells me to get rid of this data because it looks like social security numbers or it looks like address and birth dates and stuff. IBM has reported in one of their studies, and I can make these links available, um, that the uh, reduction there's actually been a reduction in the amount of data breaches that are happening. However, I'm noticing a lot of nonprofits, especially around things like taking credit cards, um, having to use more and more careful measures 
um, in order to transfer money and in order to keep records. I can't imagine how it would feel to have my donor records stolen and held for hostage in exchange for Bitcoin, which is what's been happening. I'm wondering um, how we all are experiencing this. Uh, I know that with my clients, I've gotten to the point where I just ask them to put data on a, a memory stick that goes with me and is used in my computer only when I'm offline. What are some of the measures that the rest of us have used um, to help with uh, data security? So here at UF, um, we actually have our data on a VM and I use VPN to go in and uh, do any analysis and it basically stays on site. It doesn't go anywhere. And then in terms of, you know, charts and graphs, of course, that's aggregate data and that's not an issue. So, you know, we're, we're pretty conservative about making sure that we don't send things up into the cloud and that we aren't um, releasing information that could be uh, ruinous to our reputation or yeah. to our um, compliance issues. Do you find that people are still passing files around, Excel files around on email? Um, we try to curb that as much as possible. Um, we, it, it happens within our buildings, but our, so we have a separate network from the rest of the university, and it's a pretty solidly tight, closed network. And our uh, IT team does a really good job of, of uh, testing it often and making sure that we, we're okay. But when we do have to send information outside of our little network. We definitely use things like SharePoint, and uh, we make anybody who make sure anybody who sees our stuff signs a confidentiality agreement. <laughs> now, what happens when they actually um, look at the file? That's that's up to them and their their ethics and whether they're following the agreement. But we try to be very careful. Thank you. Ashu, in your uh, experience, you're at a kind of a big university. Um, what are some of the data things that you have to do, and also how does it inhibit your work? No, just like Audrey said, we have the VPN, we have the two-step authentication on all our systems, but the majority of our data is on Salesforce, but obviously they take the protection to guard the data, just like any big data storage services like Amazon or others. So we we understand that they are they are they're they think that our data would be protected and we take their word and obviously they these are big companies so they have to protect our data. But you mentioned something about the studies that I, I don't think any IT person, any even our IT or compliance wouldn't say that it's a question of if, it's a question of when when the data breaches will happen. I mean, we saw this with Equifax, we saw this with mm -hmm. Anson. They are going to happen. It's just what are we going to do, how are we going to protect that uh, from that happening, as well as what's our follow-up once that happens. But yeah, the common sense practices we do observe. We we try not to share our files outside. Everything is protected, uh, encrypted, and stays within our network. But still, there are risks. You keep your laptop open, in a coffee shop, and then what next? Your patient data is exposed. So, so you have mm -hmm. to use some common measures also. One of the yeah, uh, go oh, ahead. Sorry, go ahead, Marianne. 
So um, I agree, um, Ashu, that um, there's a lot of issues with, oh, I, with gift officers, they are traveling, they're in a coffee shop, they want to look up for their next gig. I, the, my television tells me there are people parked in every coffee shop who are just waiting for me to open up my laptop so they can steal what I'm using. And um, I still tend to use VPNs and um, other things just to make sure that doesn't happen. And I also, my laptop tells me if somebody's sneaking onto my network. But um, I hear you. It's, uh, at some point, we have to allow training and ethics statements to stand for us because we cannot breathe down the neck of every person who's consuming our information. No, it's using a VPN is definitely a terrific idea in coffee shops. Uh, although it drains your battery, <laughs> it's always a good idea to have a VPN on because there was these studies that people at uh, coffee shops can impersonate your Facebook logins just by using the cookies and somehow they get into your, uh, yeah. you're sharing the same network. It's, it's scary. It is. It is. It's getting uh, more and more clever. Um, I agree. So moving the topic a little bit uh, in a different direction, one of the big questions that the Ethics and Compliance Committee gets all the time has to do with data scraping and LinkedIn data. What are the things that y'all tell your clients or your fundraisers about that? Everybody says, you know, we can just look up the LinkedIn data and store, many fundraisers do that, right? They will go and say, oh, actually, you know, uh, LinkedIn has better data than what's in the system. So why can't I just go and do that? And I guess it's fine if they're doing one-off searches and they're doing their on their own in their personal accounts. But when it comes to prospect research or using APIs to scrape that data or even talking to vendors, I don't know how they do it, but when you look at their terms of services, it's pretty clear that that data, you cannot store it locally. You cannot put that in your system. So you cannot even go one by one and just copy and paste all the job titles and save those in your system. So you have to be very careful. A lot of times you just think, oh, since others are doing it, you can do it too. But it is actually going to the terms of services many times and asking vendors who say, oh, we can give you this data. And you have to actually ask them many, many times, how are you actually getting this data? you really have the right permission. So it's interesting. I thought that there was a, that's a court case that looked at the argument that, uh, that <coughs> excuse me, that some of the um, companies were scraping LinkedIn, but only their public site. So they weren't actually logging in and agreeing to the terms of service. So I think that's how some uh, groups argue and get around the idea that it's you know that it's something that they shouldn't be doing because it's right there it's public facing how is that different from just manually doing a google search and looking at it it's just you're doing it very quickly um what do you think of that yeah i think it's a slippery because what if tomorrow you say in new york times their articles are public so i can read them so why can't i just copy and paste that into I mean, obviously, it's borderline plagiarism also. It's not borderline, it's strictly plagiarism, but also it's copyright issue. You're just copying someone else's stuff and right. locally. That's great and point. the court case is currently winding its way through the appeals process. So we yeah. don't have a definitive answer from the courts on that topic just yet. 
Yeah. I have to agree with Ashu. The, the, the piece about LinkedIn is that LinkedIn is the loudest web page I know about, no, you may not scrape our data and make a new database from it. And so uh, if I get um, a client who says, why can't you? That's my answer. I can't right. because they said. And how embarrassed would you be um, if your donors found out that you were walking around an ethical and a, and a, a terms of service wall to sneak a peek at them. I mean, we're every 10 years or so, the Wall Street Journal goes off about prospect research and how we're spying on people. And here we are, you know, thinking about, um, uh, you know, walking past the terms of service and helping ourselves to information um, that we're not paying for. And so there are websites. I don't have any, if a website doesn't tell me that I can't scrape the data, I don't have any problem scraping the data. Some websites are perfectly comfortable with that. The Major League Baseball website is perfectly comfortable with all kinds of developers scrubbing, scraping their data. But I, before I go scraping anything, I'm going to look at their terms of service. That's why I don't have a Forbes list, because Forbes is like, no, you can't scrape it. You have to buy it. Right. So I have one more question for the three of you, and I want you all to, to peer into your crystal ball and what are the, the things that you're seeing on the horizon? What are the big issues with ethics and compliance in regards to data analytics that you're, coming, that you're seeing coming in the next you know, year or five years? Audrey? So I was thinking about um, the fact that there's a lot of hype these days about AI and where AI is going. And, um, one of the things that we really need to think about specifically in terms of ethics is the idea that um, what's missing from AI is transparency. Can you uh, go and tell somebody why they appeared on a list? Um, is it transparent? Do you know um, why an algorithm might say that you are in this category rather than this category? And um, so there's some kind of murky water of transparency if the machine is doing all the work. Not that that's necessarily a bad thing, it's just something that we need to think about. Um, I also think a big issue is to think about how our data might reflect our own implicit biases and that the AI may pick up on that. Um, we've seen some trends on Twitter, for example, where uh, they've set up some AIs to interact with other Twitter users. And no, I'm not talking about Russian bots, I'm talking about like an actual AI. And um, within 24 hours, the, the, the bot became incredibly racist and sexist and pretty hateful. And we wanna make sure that our data doesn't clear, I mean, most of us are in organizations that clearly don't reflect that kind of bias, but there are other things that are going to be in our data that we want to make sure that we are looking at as AI becomes more and more prevalent. Thanks, Audrey. Ashtosh? Yeah, I think this is counter to the argument that we just had where is scraping LinkedIn data okay, which is not okay according to their terms of services. But what if we, we champion this donor-centric way of doing things, so all these new platforms, the alumni engagement platforms, what if we built these explicit permissions and asked them 
the donors and prospects and friends about their preferences and learn about their preferences once they sign off. And then we become really donor-centric rather than guessing what a donor might be interested in, we actually learn from their preferences and try to give them what they might be interested in, whether it's communications or gift opportunities or events that we may recommend. So it's almost opposite of, let's not scrape data where we shouldn't be, but actually ask the donors what they're interested in, try to learn from their their preferences and their their social media behavior using AI and other automated tools. Thanks, Ashutosh. Marianne, what does your crystal ball tell you? So my crystal ball has been watching um, more and more people put their private information online and and have no qualms with that. So the the part of me that is like, that's private, you know, if the you know, if the bad guys took over the government, they'd be able to find me is also watching me talk about, you know, where I am every Wednesday at noon and um so I have to wonder when when I get on Facebook and they have Google ads that are very specific to the things that I have been looking at online. Is it still creepy or is it that I have an electronic butler? And sort of like the good version of what Audrey was describing, a little electronic electronic butler that says, hey, you were looking for this, but we found this over there. And that allows, uh, if nonprofits used it, uh, it would allow nonprofits to, to do what Ashu was talking about, bring to the attention of the person um, those things that would interest her about the nonprofit. And it's, it's becoming more expected than um, than creepy now uh, because Amazon and uh, Google Ads and Facebook all do such a great job of figuring out what I like to look at that they they can uh, keep talking to me about those things that interest me. It also, as Ashu said earlier, it also keeps me in my bias. I will look at I can look at yarn all day. It doesn't matter what I'm looking for. Google will show me yarn and fiber and stuff for me to play with because I'm an avid knitter. So um so I'm I'm stuck in that place and I think it's generational. As a baby boomer, I'm like, oh my gosh, that is so creepy. And I'm watching people younger than me thinking that it's a fabulous, you know, handy little concierge to have in your pocket. Your phone says, hey, look at this, because um, my behavior has been getting watched. So basically it's it's using AI for good instead of evil. <laughs> which I, right. I hope that's the direction things right. go. <laughs> and that's what the problem is, as as we learned from World War II, you know, using it for good can sometimes just, like, can be fliply, you know, completely flipped to evil depending on who's in charge. And so yeah. 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 I'm still point. in that space. Yeah. yeah that's a good point. Um, I think it's uh, another thing that when you guys were talking that occurred to me is that, so we've got this concierge thing going on. We've got this um, check on our behaviors to you know, feed the AI. I think that something that we'll probably need to do more of in the nonprofit space on our end through like our communications groups is uh, gamify what we do to reinforce and entice people to come and behave in different ways with us. Uh, so I can see us doing more gamification of our message. In the future. So do you mean like have a, like an online scavenger hunt and people who, you know, get all, collect all the QR codes, get a prize or do you mean something that, else? That it could be that it could be something 
as simple as, um, well, some of these things exist now, like um, currently on campus, we have an app for students where if they do, you know, 20 of these traditional University of Florida things, they come and get a t-shirt from our alumni association. Well, we could extend that as a virtual thing, come, um, you know, go to an event in your town and get a badge as the, you know, the best gator in, you know, in Ithaca, New York. That kind <laughs> of thing. <laughs> so um, I, I can see us doing more of those kinds of things, giving people rewards, badges for all sorts of things that we used to have gift clubs for and that we might still have gift clubs, but we might be able to do with a more massive audience um, because there are different ways to encourage them to give. I, I can see that that, that would be a, an interesting space to go. And, and I think going back to what Marian also said, that there, there's that huge bias question, right? I mean, Facebook, Twitter, all of them got in trouble, even Google News to a certain extent, for catering too much to one's needs. So if I keep looking at cat videos, Facebook will keep serving me cat videos because that's what I want to look at. But what if watching cat videos is bad for me? Who's asking that question? Who's going to stop that from right. happening? And I think that is a definitely a biased question and making sure that AI is doing uh, something for good rather than just to get more clicks and more page time. Right. And how do you reward that? I think, I mean, I think the other thing that's coming down the pike is, you know, we started saying it in 2002, the minute the internet and social media showed up, we lost complete control of our content. So people can talk about my nonprofit all they like, and I don't always have access to go out there and shut it down. Um, so it's uh, the, the ethical dilemma is, do I want to go out there and shut it down, or do I allow the discussion to continue? Well, there probably will be AI bots that will go out and... Um treat, you know, address it, like whatever the issue is, try to counter or try to um, help the person that, that is disgruntled. Hmm. I mean, there's this news stories about all the people being paid to write positive reviews on sites like Yelp or Hotels.com, that kind of thing, uh, right. and you have a, a bad review to counteract it. Yep. Paid right. influencers. Right. And I think that's the next um, ethical dilemma. So, okay, so I'm used to Amazon having robots talk to me about my experience. No matter how enthusiastic the writing is, I see through it. I, I agree that we don't want to get to a place where a person trying to connect to an organization is only talking to a machine. We still need some way for information about happy people, unhappy people, or just people's comments to get to a person so the person can reach out and say, you know, we appreciate your connecting. We know how busy you are, sort of a thing. Yeah. So bots make things more efficient, and they certainly bring information to me faster. I, there's still a threshold where I want a person. Oh, no, I couldn't agree more. I just think that mm. <laughs> it'll be addressed by the bots, and then we'll get the information back. And then yeah. uh, the response can be targeted and strategic. Right. Yeah. So I want to thank all of you so much uh, for taking the time to chat today and to have all these amazing questions uh, for us to think about. 
before we leave, I do want to let people know that the Ethics and Compliance Committee uh, has a ethics toolkit that's available on the APRA website. On the APRA website, you can also find the APRA Statement of Ethics, our LinkedIn statement, as well as the toolkit. Uh, the Ethics Committee is also listed on the APRA website. We are always happy to answer any questions folks might have. Uh, we also do an Ask the Ethicist column that appears in APRA Connections that addresses various different topics uh, that come to our committee that, that folks ask. So if you ever have any questions or need any help, the committee is always there to help. Uh, so again, thank you all so much uh, for chatting today and thanks APRA for making this possible. Next up after this will be the Ethics and Prospect Research Podcast is the next one in the series. So stay tuned for that podcast coming out soon. Thanks, everyone. Thank you. Thank you. Bye. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Beyond Prospecting, the APRA podcast. To discover all that APRA has to offer, visit aprahome.org. For links to content featured in this episode, check out the show notes. If you like the show and want to help others find us, please subscribe to and rate us on iTunes. Until next time.